listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Gleaser. Welcome back. Today's special guest for our last episode of the year is Wendy Young, the president of Kids in Need of Defense, or KIND. We discussed her career, KIND's mission and history, and pro bono opportunities to assist unaccompanied immigrant and refugee children. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Wendy, welcome to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. Thanks so much for making the time for us and joining us today at our worldwide headquarters, as I like to call it. Thanks for having me on. So let's jump right in. To start, could you tell us about your background and your journey to KIND? Sure. Well, um, I went to law school um, very uh, focused on uh, a career in the human rights field and very quickly um, gravitated to the field of immigration and refugees because I see people who are on the move around the world, many of whom are forcibly displaced, as really the, the kind of the real life example of what happens when human rights are not protected. Um, so I uh, have really dedicated my career for the past 27 years um, to the protection of immigrants and refugees, and most specifically within that are the issue of children who are on the move around the world. Um, over half of the world's refugees, in fact, are children, and many of them are migrating alone without their parents. And um, as any child is vulnerable when they're, when they're alone in this world, you can imagine what happens to kids when they're crossing international borders, not speaking the language, very often traumatized by what's happened in their life, traumatized by the journey itself. So these are some of the most uh, at-risk children uh, in the world. Um, KIND, my organization, Kids in Need of Defense, was founded to protect these children, um, and most specifically to, um, to facilitate pro bono legal representation of children in their deportation proceedings when they arrive in the United States and ask us for protection. Let's talk a little bit about your background, and you talked a little bit about this, but I think in the world we live in today, immigration and refugees, you can't read the newspaper without seeing an article about it or several. It's, it's in the mindset, it's in the news, it's in our politics, it's in our current events. This wasn't always the case. There were sort of decades or periods when other issues percolate up. So how, again, did it come to be in the forefront of your um, passions, your desires, and what you wanted to immerse your, your career and, and develop expertise in and, and, and follow? Sure. I started my career with an organization known as the National Council of La Raza, which has a, a strong, vibrant immigrant rights program. And I was shocked as a young attorney to read a news article one day that there was a young boy, I believe he was around 11 or 12 years old, who was being held in federal detention in a locked facility in Texas simply because he had arrived at the border alone. And at that age, most kids don't even realize that they're at a border and um, that they're um, in immigration proceedings. Yet this child was being locked up in a facility. and. Um, one day, um, he was in the facility, and um, he put his toothbrush in his back pocket of his prison uniform at that young age. And um, the, the um, prison officials took him out in the, the yard and beat him up just because he had put his toothbrush in his back pocket. That story 
just grabbed my attention and I thought, what are we doing as a country? When young people arrive here alone, they're looking for our protection and we lock them up, we put them through deportation proceedings, we treat them poorly and then we send them home. And I think it's one of those issues that as a lawyer, you, most lawyers react to this as this is an issue of social justice, this is an issue of due process, this is an issue of the rule of law. And, and as lawyers, what better can, thing can we do than spend our time helping children? It's a very values-driven enterprise when you hear these stories and think about the challenges and the opportunities for, for lawyers to provide services that are right. so desperately needed. So tell us about KIND and its origin story. How was the organization created? Sure. We started in 2009 and we were co-founded by Angelina Jolie in her capacity as a special envoy to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, and uh, Brad Smith, who is now President and Chief Legal Officer of the Microsoft Corporation. So an interesting marriage of two partners. But they came together out of a common recognition of the need for legal representation for children in deportation proceedings because, in fact, less than half the children who are going through these very complex court proceedings are represented by counsel. And they're highly dependent on volunteer lawyers to provide that representation. So um, Angelina and uh, Brad Smith came together and said, let's create a movement in the legal community. Let's reach out to law firms. Let's reach out to corporate legal departments, law schools, bar associations. Uh, raise awareness of this tremendous need for legal representation and uh, match as many of these kids as we can with counsel. So we launched in 2009. Um, when we started, we only had seven staff. We now have close to 130. When we started, we had seven offices across the United States, and we now have 10. And the response from the legal community has been extraordinary. We've trained over 15,000 lawyers to provide representation to these kids in their proceedings. That's amazing. And for listeners, like, yes, that is the Angelina Jolie you are thinking of. <laughs> Same person. <laughs> Same person. And, and a real hero, I have to say, in, in the field of refugees, and particularly on refugee children, she's just passionate about ensuring their protection. As the president of the organization, how do you spend your time? I spend my time rallying the troops. <laughs> um, and really, I, I mean, honestly, to it's my extraordinary staff who does the hard work. Um, but I spend my time talking to law firms, talking to corporations, uh, also doing uh, advocacy work here in Washington, D.C. to try and improve the treatment of unaccompanied children in our system. So working with Congress, the White House, and the various federal agencies such as the Department of Homeland Security, Health and Human Services, who have contact with these kids. If you had unlimited time, what else would you like to be doing? What's on your to-do list that you never get to do? Well, you know, one dream I have, and actually we're about to launch um, an affiliate of KIND in the United Kingdom to do similar work there, but one dream I do have is these children are on the move throughout the world, and I would love to see KIND's unique pro bono model extended to other countries, um, because I do think that you know, when we think about refugee children, we very often think about shelter, we think about food, we think about health care. Well, in the case of kids on the move who are facing deportation proceedings, access to legal assistance is actually probably the number one form of humanitarian assistance they need because children without status, their, their, their opportunities are cut off. You mentioned this a minute ago when you talked about 
motivating and empowering empowering your staff, but how would you describe your leadership style? I really um, try to be a motivator first and foremost. Um, I have a, a huge degree of trust in my staff who really every day are out there on the front lines working with our law firm and corporate partners, training and mentoring them to, to represent these kids in their proceedings. So I really feel like I am there just to, to provide them with the the, the energy and the fuel to keep going and let them loose to do what they do so well. Can we look back for a minute since KIND was founded in 2009? How do you think the landscape has changed? Dramatically. <laughs> uh, first and foremost, child migration is visible now in a way that it, it never has been before. Um, this is primarily because of the child migration crisis that hit the front pages of the newspapers in 2014. Um, which was largely driven by the violence that's occurring in Central America, which is forcing kids out of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras in search of protection elsewhere. So um, the days in which this was kind of a quiet niche issue within the immigration field, frankly, are over. Um, and it has generated a great deal of emotion, a great deal of controversy um, around how should we treat these children when they arrive at our borders. So we've been doing a lot of advocacy just trying to educate the media, educate Congress, educate those in the federal government about who these kids are and why they need our protection and our attention. Um, and one thing I will say is KIND does not stand for the notion that every child should be allowed to remain in the United States. What we stand for is every child should have access to due process, a fair hearing, and an opportunity to share their life experiences so that we can determine is it best for them to stay in the United States or is it best for them to go back to their home countries. That's a really helpful clarification and we see all the time that people don't understand that in this country you for many purposes do not have the right to a lawyer, right? You think of in civil cases people know from criminal law and they watch TV and they think that applies but you know you can lose your children, you can lose your home and so it, it comes as a shock to people that children do not have any right to a representation and indeed you have very small children, right, who are forced to manage a very complicated process as little kids yeah. and there has been a high profile pushback where people think that's fine <laughs> and that they can do yeah. an adequate yeah. job, yeah. right? Yeah. Were... No, that's exactly right. I've been in immigration courts and seen five-year-olds stand up before a robed immigration judge in a formal courtroom setting, a trial attorney from the Department of Homeland Security who's arguing for that child's removal from the United States, and there's the five-year-old expected to raise a defense against deportation. And these are literally proceedings where life or death decisions can be made on behalf of these kids. I mean, at a minimum, they're life-altering decisions, and they can be life-saving. So to expect a five-year-old to understand the complexities of U.S. immigration law and articulate a reason why they should be, for example, granted refugee status, it, it, it really is absurd. I, there's no other word for it. So to see kids in that courtroom with a lawyer by their side just changes the picture entirely. And in fact, statistically, children who are represented by counsel are five times more likely to be granted some form of protection and the ability to remain here. Yeah, it's documented how it makes a difference in the outcome, but even beyond that, 
to help us feel like we have a fair process, right? That, that there is due process regardless of the outcome. It's such a fundamental value and, and need. Exactly, exactly. And we've actually done some focus group testing and find that the vast majority of Americans do believe in that due process. They do believe that children should be afforded counsel in, in, in a proceeding like this. So let's dig into the work and the range of pro bono opportunities and services that are available. Our, our goal is that our listeners are inspired by our programs and then they want to get involved. So we want to educate them a little bit about what types of opportunities interested uh, pro bono lawyers could get and help and be involved in by um, hooking up with KIND. Sure. Well, first, our website is www.supportkind.org. And um, our staff welcome calls from, from lawyers throughout the country. Um, and typically what we do is we will conduct a training, um, which could be for a small group of lawyers or for hundreds at a time. We're very open to what our partners feel is works best for them. We've also done video conference training so that we can, for example, with a law firm, train multiple offices within the law firm at one time. Um, and then what we do is we will um, work with our volunteer attorneys to match them with a case that they find interesting. And our staff, who are expert in immigration law and spe specifically in children's immigration law, will then work very, very closely with that volunteer lawyer to train and mentor them every step of the way throughout the case. So um, our volunteers, um, we, we want to make sure that they don't feel like they're just kind of left out there hanging with a case to figure out and navigate the immigration system that they're probably not familiar with on their own. We will really guide and advise the attorney throughout the process. Training and mentoring is so critical to enabling people to have good experiences and provide good representation, right? Because we're asking people to step outside of their comfort zone and their area of expertise. And so that's really a linchpin of, of making this all work. Exactly. And part of our job is understanding the needs of our partners. We understand that everybody who volunteers with us has their day job. <laughs> um, so we try to work with their schedules. Um, we, we will match a law firm attorney with a, uh, an attorney from a corporate legal department, if, if that works well. Um, so we're very strategic, very innovative in how we approach pro bono, recognizing that we're asking people for one of the most valuable things they have, which is their time. And I think you've been able to develop very efficient models where people have good experiences and at the firm, at the legal department, as you develop in-house expertise, because you've gotten people that have handled cases and understand whether it's this country of origin, we understand what we need to do, or this particular geographic area, we've developed some expertise, then the firm can leverage that. And all of a sudden you have in-house experts and the next case isn't so challenging and you've got many more mentors, not just at KIND, but also in your own uh, firm, in your own institution. And that makes all of the delivery of legal services that much more efficient and less scary and <laughs> fun. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well. And it's fun to see that develop within a law firm or, or a legal department where they start to build their knowledge, then they start to team, and it it's, creates almost a ripple effect throughout the office. Um, and it creates great opportunities for lawyers in-house to, to partner with each other and do something that's different from their day-to-day. -day. So it, I love seeing that happen. How do you handle geography? 
Um, you have offices now as part of the growth. Your, your footprint has greatly expanded around the country. Um, but the clients are, or the kids in need, wherever they are, are in various locations. And then your pro bono lawyers are in various locations. So let's talk about how we deal with where you are, where the clients are, and where the pro bono volunteers are. Sure. How does that all work? Windkind launched, um, we very strategically placed our offices in metropolitan regions where we knew there were large populations of unaccompanied children and we knew there were pro bono resources. So we now have 10 offices across the country, which is uh, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Houston, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Newark, New York, and Boston, and Atlanta. Um, but we also recognize that, um, particularly with the increase in the number of unaccompanied children arriving in the United States, that you're now seeing pockets of children popping up all over the country. Um, and an added challenge is the immigration courts also tend to be in those major metropolitan areas. So trying to kind of connect all those dots is truly a challenge. Our model um, really is built on uh, working with partners that are in the the locations that we're, we are and doing a lot of, you know, frankly, one-to-one uh, -one interaction with our volunteers. But in recognition of the increasing complexities of the situation, uh, what we're launching now is a technology-based approach and Microsoft is very much partnering with us in this effort. So what we're piloting is trying to use technology more strategically to train our volunteers, to connect attorneys to the child, and potentially, we're in conversation with uh, uh, the Department of Justice, also connecting the child and the attorney to the immigration court through technology. Because what you see with these kids is very often they live hours away from where the, their cases are jurisdictioned. So they have to travel three, four hours, for example, from the Central Valley of California to the San Francisco Immigration Court. So we're trying to break down those barriers using technology. Um, this is just at the beginning stages. We'll see where it takes us, but I think it's got, it's, it shows great promise for solving some of these real, real challenges that we're facing. Well, technology is such a big access to justice tool, right? right. To try and figure out how we can leverage it to, to make the whole system work better. So mm -hmm. we'll love to have you all back and, and hear how it's going right. to, get, to get a status report. But I sometimes think if we were trying to set out to design the most burdensome inefficient system, this might be what we would come up with, you know, as <laughs> exactly. opposed to the best, highest, and, and most fair. Could you talk about, it, it? this is a big generalization, so it, we could break it down as, as makes the best sense to you, but I want to put some detail to paint a brighter picture of what does it mean to represent one of these children? What what is the what would I be taking on? What would I be doing? And not just oh, it would take this many hours, and it would probably last this many months or weeks. Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. what what are the tasks? What are the demands? What 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 does it mean to help one of your one of these children? Sure. Well, first and foremost, with kids, what you find as an attorney is that you have to develop a rapport with the child. You have to develop trust. And particularly with the children that we work with, um, most of them have been highly traumatized. Um, they're very uncertain about their futures. They've had experiences that, you know, we would hope that kids would never have to face. Um, issues of, 
you know, sexual violence, seeing family members murdered, abducted. So high degrees of trauma. So you have to, you, you, you have to develop that relationship with the child first and foremost. Because what you need to do in representing them in their immigration proceedings is give them a comfort level and the ability to articulate what happened to them so that they can demonstrate to the immigration judge that they do qualify for relief. Um, then, you know, in the immigration system, it's, it's a combination of appearing in court, um, both in immigration court and also in these cases in family court, um, filing the necessary paperwork to apply for various forms of status. Um, and this is where, again, my, my staff is, is critical to this process because they will guide our volunteer lawyers on, okay, you need to fill out the I-360 now to file with DHS. You know, it, it's, they will give you the roadmap and, and help you figure that out. Um, and, you know, the children can be eligible for different forms of protection. So it's also, there's a lot of strategy that goes into this in terms of deciding, okay, are we going to go for asylum? Or are we going to go for what's called special immigrant juvenile status? Um, what makes most sense for this child? Um, also understanding the jurisdiction within which you're, you're practicing. Immigration courts can vary dramatically from city to city. Um, and then just to your question of timing, depending on the form of relief the child applies for, depending on which um, geographic location they're in, these cases can take months or they can take longer. Um, but having said that, it's not necessarily that the case is front and center every day of that time period. They, there's kind of uh, waves of activity that, that happen. Yeah, backlogs while you're waiting exactly. for the next exactly. part of your procedure to, exactly. to happen. And I will say, just from my experience, this work is not just for litigators. I, I, I think it gets a little scary when you hear things like immigration court, you know, and, and judge and things like that. Right. People from all types of practice areas have found this work to be very meaningful and very satisfying and that they are able to make a contribution. That, so. <laughs> that's absolutely right. There's a lot that goes into this that's not the court appearance. And, um, and even there, we've done some partnerships, for example, between corporate legal departments and law firms to, to, to tap into different expertise. The other thing I should say is there's plenty of opportunities for volunteer work for other members of your team. You don't have to be a lawyer to help in these cases. We always need translators, people to do country conditions research, um, people who just want to spend time with the child. I mean, there's lots of ways that, that the former corporate employees can get involved with these kids. That's a great point. I think we, we talk a lot about being part of large institutions, whether it's your legal department or your law firm. And in many instances, most of the people that work at this institution are not lawyers, just by number. And they have a lot to contribute and that we want to bring people's interests and talents and skills all to bear exactly. uh, to promote access to justice. So that is a fantastic point. You spoke about what many of these children have been through, sort of the trauma from just the baseline of having left your home country and made this trip, best case scenario, right. is actually traumatic to the worst of the worst. So these are emotionally charged and can be very difficult situations to, to work on. How do you, and particularly your colleagues who are doing this full time in the trenches, how do you avoid burnout? Yeah, this is something that we have to be very conscious of ourselves because if you're going to help somebody else, you also have to tune into yourself and make sure that you're feeling whole and healthy. So um, our staff 
our team. They work with each other. They support each other. I think that's really critical, and they do that with our volunteers as well. But we also have employee assistance programs and other programs that people can tap into when they're feeling that burnout and that stress. And uh, you know, again, tuning into yourself and how you're reacting to what you're hearing is so critical if you're going to do this kind of work. I think our pro bono community has come a little late to the table to understanding this, yeah. but I think now we're really in it. And I think pro bono lawyers should understand that there is support and people shouldn't be scared away from taking on difficult matters that we are um, conscious of this and that there's support available. So I don't want people to be either overly scared or think I don't even want to dip my toe into the water because of potentially unintended consequences. I think that there is a lot of support available and the positives for anybody really outweigh sort of the, the negatives and they are manageable and we are available and there's a support network and a support system and I think being able to talk about it and being conscious of it is part of the battle so I like to see we talked about this earlier where firms in particular who have developed expertise in the area they have a built-in support network and they will say okay we're gonna have a brown bag and anyone working for unaccompanied minors or let's take everyone who's done asylum work you know this year people who are working with survivors of human trafficking this is heavy stuff you're dealing with uh people who are working on our death penalty cases let's come have lunch and just talk you know talk therapy i i'm feeling this keeps me up at night anyone else i feel better you know not being so alone in this and absolutely so, kind of spotlight is the best you know disinfectant but it also makes us feel like ah it's normal absolutely. you know and and, and the flip side, what we also hear from our volunteer attorneys is they, they find working on these case, cases life-changing as well, and that it reminds them why they went to law school. Um, there's that feeling of helping a child. Um, it, it, it's extraordinary, and I've seen lawyers cry when the, the grant of asylum is, is announced. Um, and, and the other thing that I, I, I will say is the clients themselves are actually, yes, they're victims, but they're also s survivors. And they are your partner in this. Um, I was just talking to a staff member the other day who's doing some work groups um, with unaccompanied children to help them articulate their stories so that we can share those stories with policymakers, the media, others. And she shared the story of a, of a young boy who kept saying, I'm strong, I'm strong, I'm strong. So finally one of the other young people said, why do you think you're so strong? And that boy said, because I have a strong heart. I have a good heart. I mean, these kids, they have, they have such energy, they have such commitment, they have such resilience, and they do go on and do incredible things in life. Yeah, I think it's, it is incredibly empowering. And we think about using our legal skills for good. Well, what's better than saving someone's life? You're exactly. really at the start of their life. And um, we, it gives a lot of perspective. I think, you know, we're in Washington, D.C. We love to complain about the metro and daily inconveniences. And we're taping this on the day of the national Christmas tree lighting, which is the worst traffic Armageddon right in our area. So we'll all be complaining about that next. But it gives us such perspective to think, yes, we're resilient, we can overcome that, but look at what 
people do overcome, you know, the grit, the life force. It's just makes us feel much better about being human beings, right? That all the good qualities about exactly. being alive yeah. and being hopeful and helpful. And I think in this day and age, that's probably even more important than ever. Exactly. So it's a, it's a very positive message. I wanted to spend a, a minute on a concept that I think even our most educated listeners who are familiar with a lot of the issues that we're talking about may not be familiar with, and that is reintegration. Hmm. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that, and I know KIND had a specific project in this area, the Guatemalan Child Return and Reintegration Project, and I'm curious how this fits into the larger sort of picture, and I think that will be really interesting for people to hear. Sure. One of the things that um, we have really been promoting is the fact that we need to create a safety net for these children at every point of the migration experience. So, for example, most of our children are coming from Central America currently, and they're fleeing violence that's generated mostly by gangs and, and narco-trafficking tra cartels. So we need to look at the root causes of the migration. We need to ensure that children are protected as they transit through Mexico or other countries. We need to ensure that they have access to due process and appropriate care while they're here in the United States while we sort out their situation. But we also recognize that some of these children will return home. Um, that might be because they miss home, so they volunteer and they, they decide to go home on their own. It could be because they're ordered deported. So um, through our, our Guatemalan Child Return and Reintegration Project, we were the first organization to really try to create a program to ensure that safe return and reintegration. Historically, the United States has returned children and virtually left them back in the home country with the expectation that the home country will then step in to, to ensure that child's safety. Well, in fact, these are countries with very weak or no child welfare systems, so that just doesn't happen. So what we've done is partner with local NGOs in the region, done a needs assessment before the child returns, communicate that to our partner who's at the airport to welcome the child back, and then provide whatever services the child may need to reintegrate safely and sustainably. So that could be family reunification support, it could be school re-enrollment, health care, whatever that child needs to, to stay home safely. We've proven successful in this project, so we're now expanding it to children returning to Honduras, and we're also working with kids who are returning from Mexico back to Central America. I feel like that's such a sign of a mature, maturing organization, realizing um, over time the full dimension of the needs, right? And, and we talk a lot about holistic services, right? You can't just kind of look at part of the person or part of the problem. And this is part of really helping people through their whole cycle, you know, wherever they may land for whatever reason to ensure success. Yeah. Um, and I think it also talks to the global project of refugees are a global problem and services are needed everywhere. So it's hard for exactly. small organizations to operate everywhere, but we can figure out how to replicate and push out and get the help to where it's needed. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think we sometimes people classify us, if you will, as an immigrant rights organization. We are indeed that, but we're also a children's rights organization. And that child has needs regardless of where they find themselves on whatever side of a border. We talked a little bit about 
the boy with the toothbrush. We talked about the child who was strong, but could you share another one or two sort of stories that help put some color on people's experiences, either you know a successful representation, uh, an outcome that you feel good about, or just a, a vivid client um, that will help listeners really get the full extent of uh, the, the children sure, being served? Sure, sure. Well, I just learned today about a, a case that um, Goodwin Proctor and Gillette uh, co-counseled and represented together, nine years old. I believe she's from El Salvador. And they just won asylum for her. And her family was uh, horrifically targeted by gangs in El Salvador. Um, she saw a relative murdered in front of her and um, needed to get out. So she found her way here. And luckily, she was uh, lucky enough to find Goodwin and Gillette through our auspices, who did an incredible job representing her and won her asylum. So you know, her future went from one of fear to one of hope. That's amazing. And I will let listeners know that was unplanned because many of you know that I was a partner at Goodwin Proctor before I came to PBI. <laughs> so really we're laughing because that was unplanned, unscripted, just a happy coincidence. Um, have you identified any new challenges or strategic priorities, especially post-November 9? Yes. We, uh, we are looking now to figure out what the future holds, and uh, immigration is an issue that's now front and center and has become very volatile and very emotional for people and very polarizing, unfortunately. Um, and with the increased number of unaccompanied children arriving in the United States, I do fear that our issue is going to be front and center in that debate starting in January. So um, we are thinking very strategically about how do we leverage uh, new support to, to reach policymakers to educate them about who these kids are and why they need our protection? Um, we're going to have to find new voices in this discussion. Um, and um, we're also thinking about building our, our policy and advocacy capacity in order to do that, both at the federal level but also at the state level. There's actually been some very interesting examples of states and localities stepping forward on the unaccompanied children's issue and providing support for legal representation. So how do we replicate that and expand it to, uh, to other localities? Quick question that that answer made me think of, um, because we talked about immigration being polarized, polarizing, which is true. Um, compared to, let's say, your, your brothers and sisters toiling in immigration groups, you know, elsewhere around the country, is, are kids any less polarizing? It, it, you know, is the, the key to debate that we see any less vicious when it comes to children or just as or even more? I, 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 don't. I think that's true. I think that um, the majority of people feel that children are in a special category, particularly vulnerable and, and deserving of our, our protection. I definitely think that's true. Um, and I think particularly when people hear the stories of individual children who've had these life experiences, it resonates with them. I think one of the, the dangers we face in the, the immigrant rights community is we tend to talk numbers. We tend to talk very complex legal principles. When you're talking to the general public, I think it's important to boil it back down. 
um, and really put the human face on the story. And I think there's no better face than a child's face to make people really understand what it's about. I couldn't agree with that more. And that's something that I think the larger pro bono community faces. We have been, some might say, you know, seduced or fallen in love with data and analytics. And we love to talk about numbers of clients serve, numbers of pro bono volunteers. We, you know, God knows, love to talk about hours, right? You know, sort of pro bono hours every year. And that's great and it's really important and we need that, but we can't lose track of the narrative. And we have put a extra emphasis on getting back to storytelling and how we internally and externally tell the pro bono story through experiences, through clients, through individuals. And we've done sessions at our annual conference sort of each year on this. And I'm really excited this year in March, we're doing a, a multi-hour workshop on storytelling with some experts that are going to come and I think really kind of double down on this point of how do we um, use our best material uh, and leverage the best parts of what we have to say to make our case, you know, yeah. to enhance our advocacy efforts, to engage funders, to engage volunteers, to engage decision makers. We have so much to tell, but most of us, this isn't our training. It's not necessarily what we think about first. And so how do we um, take best practices from elsewhere, how do we learn from experts and, and, and make it work. And you, you can't have one without the other, right? It can't just be anecdotal. Right. That doesn't get you, you know, what you need either. But I feel for a while we've tipped too far to the other extreme and we have to come back to what we're actually doing, saving lives. I, I like to tell people now that our elevator speech was just a little wonky. So I've just changed to say I'm in the miracle business. And that gets people's, you know, ears open and they want to talk about that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so you need ways to engage and, and bring it down to to what we're actually doing. Yeah, um, I agree. The other thing I would add is also empowering our clients to speak on their own behalf. And one of the things I love seeing with the young people we work with is yes, they'll talk about, you know, why they left their home country what happened to them when they were in immigration court. But they also love to talk about, this is what I want to do. Yeah, you know? their dreams and aspirations, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? I, I think for this work, you have to be a little past focused because you have to make your case, right. but you also want to be future focused. That's, right, you right, know, right. eye on the prize right. and, and sort exactly. of what the goal is. So speaking of future focused, um, what advice do you have for law students and lawyers who are just starting out their careers? get involved. Um, find a cause, whether it's unaccompanied children or some other issue, but get involved. Use your training, use your skills. Um, you know, I think for a lot of young lawyers, you don't have that opportunity to have client contact or to, to handle your own case, and doing pro bono gives you that opportunity. Um, and I think it's, again, most lawyers find this work incredibly motivating. Um, and I've had so many lawyers who actually come back around and say, how do I get to do what you do all the time? <laughs> so I feel very privileged to be able to, to lead an organization like KIND. That's wonderful. Wendy, who is your pro bono or access to justice role model? I'm going to give you two answers. One is our thousands of volunteer lawyers who are just out there doing it day in and day out. And then secondly, one specific individual, uh, Brad Smith at Microsoft. Kind is really his baby and his passion, and you know he's in this very high-level corporate position, but he cares about the kids we work on behalf of. 
um, and you know, a fantastic example of corporate social responsibility. He's a great example. Uh, many of you know he co-chairs our corporate pro bono advisory board, and I think when we talk about role models, right, who can really be justice advocates regardless of your day job, right, they don't have to be an, an either or. Exactly. It's an and. We're, we're complicated people, and we know how to talk and chew gum at the same time, you know, and walk, I guess it's walk and chew gum at the same time. And to have visible role models like that makes a huge difference. Absolutely. So Wendy, thank you so much for being our guest today and thank for you. all the inspiring work that you and your colleagues do. It's been a real honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much to Wendy for joining us today and for all of the inspiring work that she and her colleagues do. You can learn more about KIND at supportkind.org. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this is our last episode before we take our winter break. So on behalf of all of us at PBI, let me wish you all a very happy and healthy new year and all good things for 2017. We'll be back in January with new episodes and conversations with amazing guests. In the meantime, you can find archived episodes of our podcast on iTunes and YouTube. Not too long ago, we ran a podcast review contest and I'd like to share some lovely sentiments that were posted on iTunes. A listener wrote, I'm interested in social justice issues, but I'm not an attorney, and this show makes it so easy to learn about pro bono work, even without a legal background. It's inspiring to hear about all the amazing work people are doing. Thank you so much for sharing. We're grateful for your positive feedback and encouragement. Your prize is in the mail. So be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, and please take a moment to leave a review. We'd appreciate the honest feedback, and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the program and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. And we'll send you a prize if you'd like one. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments and suggestions to pro bono at probonoinst.org. Be warned, we might just read them on the air. As always, to learn more about the Pro Bono Institute and our work, including upcoming events such as the next program in the Esther Lardent Leadership in Pro Bono series, which is a conversation with Tim Myopoulos, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Fannie Mae, scheduled for January 25th, and our annual conference, which will be in March, please visit our website at probonoinst.org. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. And we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.